Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast Special. The BFI London Film Festival, or the LFF as it's known to its friends, has come and gone for another year, but it was an absolute cracker, reaffirming its place as one of the world's leading film festivals with a string of incredible premieres and galas with some of the biggest names in movies in attendance. Every year, one of those galas is presented by Empire, a tradition we were delighted to maintain this year with The Good Nurse, a thought-provoking and at times chilling drama in which Jessica Chastain stars as Amy Loughran, The Good Nurse of the title, who works tirelessly at a hospital in New Jersey, despite suffering from a heart condition that could kill her and orphan her children at any time. Into her work and life comes Charles Charlie Cullen, played by Eddie Redmayne, who seems like the guardian angel and best friend she never knew she needed. However, and as this is a true story, is a matter of public record and was documented in a best-selling book, I'm going to reveal the true nature of Charles in a second. So if you want to remain cold going into the film, if you want to avoid spoilers, the best stop listening now, go see The Good Nurse and then come back and listen to this. All right, for the rest of you. When patients soon start mysteriously dying at the hospital, it becomes clear that Cullen is connected to these deaths. And with Lochran's assistance, the police arrested Cullen and soon found that he'd been killing patients at multiple hospitals for more than a decade. Astonishingly, it's currently believed that Cullen was responsible for the murders of around 400 people over the years, making him the most prolific serial killer in history. And so, The Good Nurse, directed by Tobias Lindholm and written by Christy Wilson-Cairns, is many films in one. It is a chilling serial killer drama which chronicles and charts Cullen's crimes with incredible performances, as you might expect, from Chastain and Redmayne. It is a relationship drama that charts the burgeoning friendship between Amy and Cullen and then the mistrust that creeps into that relationship. And it's a damning indictment of the American healthcare system. So there's a lot to dig into here, which I was delighted to do with the film stars Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, its director Tobias Lindholm and writer Christy Wilson-Cairns, the day before the Empire Gala screening at the London Film Festival. First up, you're going to hear that Oscar-winning double dose of star power in the form of Chastain and Redmayne, who talked about how they approached their roles, the notoriety of the story and their long friendship, which at last has seen them work together. Quick note, I was meant to do these interviews in person, but I had to pull out at the last minute as I was still recovering from a bout of COVID. And so both Chastain and Redmayne were plunked in front of a laptop in a hotel room so we could do the interview on Zoom, which is why basically they sound like they're talking to me on a laptop in a hotel room. Still, the idea of two of the biggest stars in Hollywood being thrust into a hotel room and plonked in front of a laptop makes me chuckle. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined in this very special The Good Nurse podcast by the stars of the film Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. How are you both? Very Good. Well. well, well. Thank you. <laughs> this is a little bit of a, a rush, this one. We, we, ordinarily, we, we'd be in the same room, but I've, I've just had the cove, so that's why. We're better than you, guys. Sorry. It's all good. It's all good. Hopefully, hopefully I am on the other side now. And not the other side of, of the, not the spectral, spectral fail. <laughs> that would be terrible, but I'm on the other side of COVID, which is, which oh, is. Yeah. Which is much better. Uh, so, I mean, there's so much to talk about with this story and with this film, The Good Nurse. Uh, it is 
Incredibly, because Charles Cullen is, by some measure, probably the most prolific serial killer in history. But it's a story that I didn't know much about before I saw the film. What about what about you guys, Jessica? Uh, was this like a, a bigger noise in the states, I guess, initially than it was over here? No, shockingly, no. I live in New York, and I had never heard this story. Um, and I know Tobias and I spoke about it many times, and he goes, "Well." Because, you know, he's talking about the film and he said, um, I don't know how much we have to hide what happens because everyone knows uh, the story. And I said, honestly, most people, I don't think, know this story. And, and I don't know if that's because the hospital sy- systems kept it quiet. You know, the different uh, places he worked and um, the, there was definitely it was advantageous for them to not um, put the, the big bell out on this one. But Charles Graber's book, um, which I believe is um, a definitive piece on this. I mean, it's really uh, incredible. Um, the, the, those who have read it obviously know about, about Colin, but for the most part, I hadn't heard anything. Interesting. And so, Eddie, I'm guessing you went in as cold as I did when you got this. this- Completely. And, and I found it, what I found extraordinary is I didn't know, I had no sense of what I was reading when I read Christie's script for the first time. Mm. And this it unraveled as this intimate friendship and and then suddenly exploded into this extraordinary scrutiny of uh, the, well the the power of the individual and this extraordinary hero in Amy Lochran um but also the failings of a system and 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 the fact that an individual was capable of accomplishing something which the systems couldn't um that that it sort of blew my mind really mm-hmm. It's wild as well in many ways because you you talk about this this friendship that develops between the two characters, and I'm always fascinated, you know, when you have incredible actors like yourselves playing scenes that are filled with subtext, and pretty much every single scene there's something else there's something else going on beneath the surface between between Amy and Charlie, whether it's those early scenes where there seems to be a genuine friendship that's being struck up here. Now, Jessica, from from your point of view, from Amy's point of view she has nothing to suspect about Charlie at that point. So I guess you're just playing that fairly openly. But Eddie, from your point of view, did you see that as a genuine friendship on, on Charlie's part? Did he see that as a genuine friendship or were you playing something else there as well? I, I, it, I absolutely believe it was genuine friendship. Um, the, we were lucky enough while making the film to, to spend time with Amy, the, the real Amy Locker and the character that Jessica plays. And she would talk about his, her love for him, like his uh, humor. He was incredibly self-deprecating, um, but that she only really ever, she sees it as two different human beings, that a disassociative thing. And that she only ever saw the murderer once in the diner scene um, uh, when uh, Amy is tapped and once in the, um, in the interrogation scene and these were two so so what it allowed you as an actor was to to play those moments truthfully and, and one of the things that jess and i and tobias were really conscious of was that the audience was never ahead of amy um so you weren't sitting there going come because you know amy was an extraordinary empathetic and mm. um and or is an intelligent woman and the idea that the, the audience said come on come on you know was was really important and Jessica, from your point of view, there are also scenes later on where 
Amy does begin to suspect that something is amiss with Charlie. And I'm always fascinated with scenes like that, where you have to communicate a couple of things. You have to communicate something to the audience that Amy feels that she suspects something or that maybe she's even in, in, you know, in terror for her own life. But you can't communicate to your scene partner those same emotions. I mean, that's an incredibly complicated dance to do from, from your point of view. Can you talk me through that and how, how you do that? What, what, what are you thinking as you're, as you're playing those scenes? Yeah, I never think in terms of like, what do I have to communicate? Because then I find that it, unless I'm thinking in terms of, of Charlie. So what I do as an actor is I just fill myself up with the reality of what the situation is. So, you know, let's say she, Amy in one situation might be terrified and confused and, um, you know, not, unsure of, of how to proceed. So I fill myself up with that but then I don't let anyone see it. It's more about hiding than trying to communicate. So in the scenes um, that I'm playing, I don't want him to see it. So I try to hide what I'm feeling. But the incredible thing about the camera, and it's something you can do in film that you're not really able to do in theater, is it sees everything. It actually sees more into you than another person could. Mm -hmm. So if you try to hide, that's what the other person is seeing, is like what's on the outside but the camera actually sees what's on the inside. So as long as you're feeling the and thinking the thoughts, the audience will see the subtext. It's a really interesting thing, the idea that, it, that a camera sees more than we do as human beings. Because yeah. I definitely feel that when you're performing, there's a scrutiny yeah. that is, I even find like in life quite often, I don't really look into people's eyes, but quite often when I'm acting, I do. I'm like, well, that's so weird because you don't in life. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's an odd. Yeah. That's absolutely right. eye contact in real life can sometimes feel a bit disconcerting. Yeah, I, yeah, even here on Zoom, I'm not you know I'm not really looking at your eyes. To be fair, I never quite know where to look, look on Zoom. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've that's, I've taken the liberty of putting up a background behind me, yeah, Eddie. So otherwise, you'd be staring at the mess of my room. You'd be going, well, "How the hell does this guy live?" That's what you're doing right now. Uh, but but basically, the, you know, this incredible relationship, this very complex relationship between between Amy and Charlie, means that no two days were the same for you guys. Uh, I imagine as well, which must be nice from an acting standpoint. Yeah, I kind of find that in most films, though. I mean, uh, in most stories, it never really felt like anything was the same. There's always different layers of what you're playing. And I know with myself, especially the physicality of what she was struggling with in terms of her cardiomyopathy and how like it was getting worse, that would definitely change. I mean, I would wear an earwig with a heartbeat to give me a clue of, how fast my heart was going in a particular scene. And, you know, I, then I would have an obstacle. Like it could be a regular scene that something benign is happening, but then I have this fast heartbeat in my ear, this rhythm that I'm constantly then trying to calm myself down. So I really um, tried to put the rhythm of what that was, of whatever Amy was struggling with on a particular day into the scene. So it never really felt like, monotony thank god but also one of the joys was once we started shooting the interiors of the hospital we were able to shoot chronologically yes and it's so rare on film that that happens but it means particularly in the intimacy of this relationship that the tiny grace notes that are kind of built over the days can then be referenced days later mm -hmm. um which which uh, one of the joys of this film for me was having you know, recently done films with big ensembles was actually just to get to 
to really mine and excavate with another actor uh, the intimacy of an individual relationship. Yeah. And Jessica, I know that, you know, Amy is essentially, I think, doing some of these these events with you. I think she's going to be at the gala tomorrow night. And so she's she's been touring with, with the film. Um, and you must have talked to her. You must have mined her for information. Yeah, it was so helpful to talk to her. Um, because uh, I got things that weren't necessarily in the script. They weren't in the book. I got things, I learned so much from her about her heart condition. Because I even the things are like, what does it feel like? What happens to your breath? What do you, what were you doing to try to calm yourself down? All of these things that only someone that is suffering from that would know, you know, how does your physicality change? Uh, and then also I learned about her as a mother, which, you know, usually don't see that in stories of, of a, like a heroine's journey of someone taking down violence. You don't see them necessarily at home and the realities of what that, the domestic life is. And she said something to me that I found so incredible. She said, I worked as a night nurse. So my girls would think they had a stay at home mom. And I realized, wow, that means that you're not sleeping all night. And then when your kids are at home, you're not sleeping. Yeah because you're a stay-at-home mom. And then at what point are you taking care of yourself? So I thought about this woman who's just really taking care of others all the time, mm. struggling with cardiomyopathy and needing a heart transplant, um, but always putting others first. And that was a huge uh, kind of like, this is, how I, this is how I need to go forward with this character. And that's just something I got from talking to her. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's also been extraordinary touring yeah. film with her because if this is someone who believes that what she did, anyone would do. Yeah. Uh, she has an extraordinary humility. And then but how complex it must be to watch this story, which was very traumatic, a relationship that was formidably complex, played out on screen and and back in the public eye and with the scrutiny of the systems and everything. I mean, I think it's... I think she's pretty amazing, Amy, but it, it must be a, a very intense um, time for her because they're making a documentary also, um, which so I think it's um, hmm. a lot. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hell of a time for her, that's for sure. And, but, but Eddie, with, with Charles, we don't get to peek into his life or his mind in the same way that we do with, we do with Amy. You know, and the, the film keeps him at a remove, he yeah. is quite inscrutable, and he, obviously we, we can see why. From your point of view, how did you approach the character? He is, Charles Cullen is still alive. Did you try to make contact, or was that something that you... No, that wasn't an option. Yeah. Um, but I felt like I had an extraordinary resource in Amy, um, who was very open in her, in the truth of what that friendship was, and the complexity of, you know, of them... This, putting this man in jail who has done these horrific things, which she knows and understands, but that she can't entirely remove what that friendship was and how important that moment in her life was. And um, so she was very uh, open with that. But also this, what I, one of the things I loved about this film was that Christy Wilson-Cairns is, is such a delicate writer that, that she's willing to underwrite, you know, and to not, um, to fulfill the, the, the tick box of everything. On the one hand, I had Charles Graeber who wrote this brilliant book called The Good Nurse, which if, if you're interested in the subject matter, it really is an extraordinary piece. Um, Charles could tell me as much, I had all this biographical information and then 
you just you do all you do all that research and then you just you know put it down somewhere and 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 you and, and embed that in you and then and then just get to play the scenes um opposite Jess. so i kind of i've i've one of the treats of this script for me was having all this information and not mm. not be, not feeling the need to reveal it all you know yeah i, I read an interview with the, with the two of you uh, i think you did in toronto where jessica you said that you know eddie uh, eddie is just eddie in between takes and then all yeah. of a sudden action is called and suddenly charles is there and is that your approach, Eddie? First of all, and how disconcerting is that for you to to, to do that? Um, I it, it my, my my approach, and I think I don't want to speak for Jess, but like we have similar processes, which was one of the dreams of this job, which is we both fucking love like the research and do all of that, and in and whether that's you know the books or we went to nurse school and we um all as as um Jess was saying talking to Amy about the specifics and then you just try and um throw all of that away and just play opposite someone i can't like i i am someone that is i have to do all the technical stuff early so with his accent or with his movement i have to do that months before because i can't like just whip it up on day but i also I, I, I am not an actor I, uh, that can stay in accent, that can stay in... Um, people often said during Theory of Everything, like, oh, you, you're a sort of method actor. And I was like, I don't understand how one would play the, I, my, that which which moment in his life are you staying in? Do you, yeah. you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm always an actor that... Okay, yeah, I suppose it's I do the research and then and then just try and play opposite the person I'm with. And one of the joys of working is getting to work with people with all different processes. But one of the wonderful things about this film was working with someone whose process really meshes with you. That's interesting because Jessica, I've I've been lucky enough to be on the set of a couple of your movies, and you do seem to have that same facility to, you know, be yourself. And then Guillermo del Toro, for example, will will yell action, and you become this uh, on Crimson Peak horrific monster of a person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to torture the people around me. I know sometimes that, um, and I've worked with people who you know they can get quite immersive in the characters, which. And, and that happens to anyone, even with processes like we have, we have to somehow find a personal connection to what we're playing. So it does feel quite exposing and immersive. But then there's another process sometimes, well, when you're playing a complicated character, there's, you don't want to torture the people around you, you know? Um, and if you're playing a serial killer, you're not really going to kill people on the side <laughs> as you're, you know, to, to find out what it feels like. Yeah. So really so much part of what we do is imagination and it's the empathy of what, what is it like to walk in someone else's shoes and how can I make them human and how can I make, remember that they are, you know, they're not a monster and they're not separate. Uh, how can I make them like me in, in some sense or me like them? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I don't, I, I'm, I might reached an age. I'm kind of like done working with people that are going to torture those around them. I'm always looking like, okay, if it's a complicated character I'm going to play with, uh, who's the actor playing it? And will they be able to, yes, during the, on it, between action and cut? Yes. Torture me. Do whatever you want. It's, you know, there's your, everything's like, you know, you, you can do whatever you want. And then once cut happens, I, I, I prefer to be able to, um, 
let the torture end. <laughs> let the torture end. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, uh, my understanding is you guys have known each other for, for quite some time. Is that the case? Yeah. yeah which the shocking thing, I mean, we really started hanging around a lot when we made this film and we made it in 2021 yeah. COVID yeah. time. Uh, so it was really still quite protected, but we, we were friends from, I guess, events. We had met, we, I first met Jess Oh yeah, at the Giffoni Film Festival, Festival, which is maybe the best film festival (laughs) in the world. It's a film festival in Italy for kids that happens every summer. And Jess and I were both invited and I I was staying in a very nice hotel and I remember seeing Jess and her grandmother on the side of a pool. So it was a very sort of of romantic way way to meet. Um, But it was also the most extraordinary film festival, which both of us, it sort of retains a great place in our heart. And then we would meet over the years at events in that kind of extraordinary, slightly odd Hollywood way in that you see someone who you've become a pal with but you haven't seen them for three years but you see them on a red carpet and you always see them dressed up exactly (laughs) and so what was lovely about making this film was actually our families getting to hang out getting we went to stay with Jess and sort of you know that sort of 5.30 5.30 in the morning, kids up, Nespresso's, you know, kind of like it was, it was the, the, in our pajamas. I your daughter's hair. <laughs> exactly. It was like, a wonderful. It was so sweet. Um, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Definitely out of the glamour. Definitely. <laughs> and, uh, and for this, of course, you're going to get dressed up again tomorrow night because this is the, the, uh, the Empire Presents Gala, uh, the Empire Gala at the LFF. And so we're all going to be there suited and booted. I'm going to be wearing my suit from, from next. You guys are going to be in something incredible, <laughs> you know, designer, just some designer thing. Uh, but, you know, but tomorrow night and things like this, like events like this and the LFF and Toronto and all the other film festivals are incredibly important for films like this, even ones that are getting wide releases on, on Netflix, I would say. It's really important to me. And it's also important, and I'm glad this film is going to play in the theaters before it goes on streaming. Mm-hmm. Because I'm someone, and I've now that theaters have opened up again, I go to the movie theaters two or three times a week. I love going to the cinema. I love seeing things projected. There is a difference I've noticed with me there's an immersive quality to going to the cinema that I don't find at home. Um, there's, you can always pause it. You can always like check your phone. There's, there's something, I, there's so many more distractions um, in ho- at home. And so I love having the option to choose and, and the way that they're releasing this, those that really love that immersive experience will have the opportunity to see it in theater before it goes on Netflix. And I'm very appreciative of that. And without sounding like a sicker fan, I'm quite thrilled that it's the Empire film because I have a subscription to Empire <laughs> half of years. Um, and um, and I, I, I'm also a great lover of magazines. And, and, and No, doesn't, doesn't it make you feel like the olden days? It does. I love holding a magazine. <laughs> I know, I know. It's an old time thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, folks at home, if you're wondering what a magazine is, ask your parents. <laughs> We love magazines. I, I, I'm stunned, Eddie, that you have a subscription. Obviously, we will refund you. You should not be paying for Empire Magazine. And, uh, and Jessica will sort you out with one as well, obviously. Of course. I'm happy to pay for it, though, because let's keep magazines going. Yeah. Darn straight. Okay, you're go- you're both going to pay for it. Uh, this is this is good. You're doing well. You're both paying more wages. This is a great way to end the okay. interview. Jessica, Eddie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Nice Bye. to talk with you. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Okay, so that was Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. And up next, we have the film's Danish director, Tobias Lindholm, who knows his way around subject matter like this, having directed a couple of episodes of Mindhunter. 
and a miniseries about the murder of journalist Kim Vall called The Investigation. He's also a frequent collaborator of Thomas Finterberg. And here we got into the film's critique of the American healthcare system a little bit more, and we talked about the notion of good, evil, and sympathy for serial killers. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this Good Nurse podcast special by the film's director, Tobias Lindholm. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. It's great to be here in London sharing the film with a live audience. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this is not, you've, you've done this already. You've been at, uh, at least one festival with The Good Nurse. But what's it like? You know, it must be, it must feel special to bring this movie into a festival situation. Well, you know, um, post-pandemic, it's amazing to be back with a live audience, um, to sit in a room with complete strangers and share these intimate emotions as we go through any movie. Um, and I could be prouder of sharing uh, this movie, uh, you know, especially with, with Amy here as well, uh, joining us. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm always nervous, uh, but this time I was mainly nervous for the screening that she had the first time she saw the film, um, the real Amy. Um, that was scary. Um, the live audience was a luxury handler. <laughs> How did she, uh, she, clearly she's a big fan of the film. Uh, she's touring with you guys. So clearly she was, she was happy with the result. Luckily, she was. It took me a second to understand what she said when she called me. So I was a little afraid that she was angry, but but apparently she was very moved and and happy. And um, you know, we couldn't wish for more. Um, she's an amazing. She's been a, an amazing resource during the whole building of this, and um, and she's an amazing person that definitely deserves a a honest and truthful you know portrayal. The film itself is really interesting because it, it is such a horrific story in so many ways, obviously. And there is probably another version of this material where it's a little bit more lurid, true crime thriller. But you go the opposite way. This is a much more atmospheric film. It's a much more muted film. It's a much more character-led and intimate movie that was something that I, I presume that you wanted to do from from day one oh definitely i you know i think when we when we're dealing with true stories um true crime or not but true stories overall we have a huge responsibility to answer a simple question why are we doing this why is this story interesting what does it add that isn't already out there and let's be honest there's a lot of serial killer movies out there um so what would another one do um right what this one contained was a light in the darkness. That light was Amy and her story and her courage and her, her humanity. And it was the inspiring a thing from the beginning was not to be too fascinated with Charlie, but to identify with this struggling, lonely mom who had the courage to remind a serial killer of his own humanity and get him to confess. You know, um, as crazy as that sounded, um, realizing that was the truth made the reason to tell this story. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I think that it's worth for us to ask that question, why do we want to tell this story? And I don't think that something is fascinating is reason enough. So, so when did it first come your way? And in what form did it come your way? So I was sent Christie's first draft, I believe, you know, um, just as I was leaving Copenhagen to go to uh, Pittsburgh to work on Mindhunter. So I read it on the plane over and, um, and quite fast realized that I had never seen a story like this. Um, and what I 
found to be the light in that darkness was Amy's humanity. So as I landed in Pittsburgh, I called Christy right away and we started to talk about how we could, you know, continue what she had already done, um, create a uh, honest and naturalistic portrayal of a, of a true life superhero who actually did what we all should do, um, look at the systems we are part of um, and try to humanize them. And uh, the system is very interesting and certainly something I want to talk about and, and how this movie betrays the American health system. Uh, it is not a generous portrayal, <laughs> I would say, of the American health system. But you mentioned Mindhunter there as well. I want to talk about that first because that is a show, obviously, that is about the psyche of serial killers. And I was fascinated with how much Charles has kept at arm's length in the movie. That decision very much to make Amy the protagonist of the film, very much the center of the movie. We don't ever really get a sense of what's driving him. He's only, Eddie's really on his own, on his own in a couple of scenes. And again, no choice is accidental in a movie. And there, there must have been a temptation, especially when you get an actor like Eddie Redmayne, to give him more to do, essentially, to give him scenes where we get to see what Charles is thinking and doing. And I love that you didn't do that, but that must have been a temptation. Of course, uh, and thank you. You know, Mindhunter is is basically a portrayal of the two FBI agents that mm -hmm. developed the uh, profiling system and that way of thought. Um, and, and, and doing that, I also realized that the answer, why did he do it, is not... No, sorry, the question, why did he do it, is not a question we can answer. I don't think that answer is there. I understand and accept the human need to bring order into chaos, but I don't think, think it exists. I think the question, why didn't we stop him, is much more interesting and is something we can learn much more from. Um, but clearly, you know, with Eddie and, the, and working with him, we realized that we could go many ways um, and we could... And we tried to see if there was ways to make cracks in his kindness um, from the beginning. But every time we tried, it felt like it was too much. It never felt honest. And I think for one good reason, that Amy was not dumb. She was not naive. So for her to not see him as a serial killer, for her to allow this to happen while she was working with him and not seeing it, he must have been extremely good at hiding it. Um, so the only thing we could do was to find interesting ways to hide it. Um, and then we, we, we shot the film. We couldn't shoot it in sequence, but we did one thing that really helped us. We did one part first, the half where she didn't know that he was doing this. And then we shot uh, the second half where she knew. And, and it would affect the way we portrayed him with the camera uh, because it was kind of her point of view. Uh, so by pointing the camera at him slightly tighter in the second half of the film allowed us to push the audience to also change perspective just a bit, but just enough to look differently at him. Um, so it was much more about, about that, which, which took us some time. You know, both Eddie and I thought that he would have to dig really deep into the darkness to do this portrayal. And, and what we realized that 85% of the, of the days on the shoot, he just came to work and he portrayed this nice guy who was helping out. Um, uh, and, and, and it was really Jessica who had to do the hard work because to be able to portray a person with a heart disease and going through those, um, 
uh, those uh, incidents um, was both physical and mentally extremely demanding. Yeah, uh, she told me about the having the the earpiece with the heartbeat in her in her ear. That's a yeah. that's a really really great idea. Was that something you you can take the credit for this to be a was that your idea or <laughs> was it hers? You know what? I I actually don't remember, but I know that we when 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 we started to use it, we had to find a way to use it because one thing is, if you use it politely, it's worth nothing, right? It's like. It's just a good story. So we needed to turn up the volume so high that it actually would mess up uh, Jessica's timing. But then again, that's what a hard seizure uh, is, is messing up your timing. It's overtaking everything. Um, so, so when we found that, it was, it was interesting. And, and, and at a point we reached, we reached a point where, where she would once in a while say, okay, just give it to me. Just let me, you know, let me have it to find my way in because, well, I guess it became our process of as soon as it was about the heart rhythm and about being distant from the reality you're in, um, messing up her hearing and, and her heart uh, rhythm uh, was, was, was helpful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we, you talked to her, you mentioned her a few minutes ago, the, the, the system and, Charles Cullen essentially wasn't caught for many, many years because of the system and because he exploited loopholes in the system for one for one thing, but also because the the American health system was set up in a way that rather than pursue a killer and admit culpability themselves, they basically just hospital after hospital after hospital seemed to pass him around like a hot potato. What's your take on the situation on and on the health system. There's there's so much going on here. There's there's shocking breaches of trust in terms of what Charles did. There's the system itself covering up what he did. There's also just a basic situation with Amy, which is she is sick and she can't afford to get better, and that feels like something that you're directly addressing in this movie. Well, I think Amy's story is addressing it. It's not something the movie does. It's just how it played out and. Um, and I think that 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 critique of systems could go anywhere, even in Denmark. I mean, I know that we are a very self-good Scandinavian country that thinks we've kind of, you know, figured it all out. Um, but let's be honest: we have we have uh, um, women and children that right now can't get back to Denmark from Syrian uh, refugee camps uh, because of rules and regulations and systems in Denmark. So I think overall, um, hopefully, this story will inspire to a look at all systems. And remind us all that we have a human responsibility in those systems to not forget what Amy remembered so beautifully, the humanity of Charlie Cullen. And, um, you know, um, we need to insist on, 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 on humanity uh, to be able to uh, exist together. That be the American healthcare system or the Danish for that matter. Is that one of the reasons why ultimately you have, and I don't want to give too much away in terms of how you, you know, the, uh, what happens in the film, but uh, there's a, scene between Amy and and Charlie uh, towards the end, you're talking about that humanity within mm-hmm. him, uh, which I think some people might look at what he's done and the, the crimes that he he's committed. You know, he might be the most prolific serial killer in American history. It's, it's never been quite established and it never will be quite established. And some people will look at that and go, this man has no humanity. There is nothing to reach out to. But yeah. this film is saying that there is and there was and she did. Well, I think we have to insist that there is humanity in all of us. I don't think that there is anything pure evil 
or pure good out there. You know, we'll be blinded if we think so. The nuances is where life is. And um, Amy had, and when you speak to the real Amy, she tells you, she will tell you that she has, she had a real friend called Charlie who helped her and who was the reason that she survived uh, through these hard months um, at the hospital with the hard physical work. Um, so to me, his humanity is not the question. Um, I don't necessarily think he's evil. I think everything he did was evil. But that's not the same. Um, and I don't think it's going to be helpful to any of us to just run around and point at each other and claiming that somebody is just evil. If we want to try to understand this, and a good reason to try to understand it is that then we can stop it, is, um, is how could we have, have, have made a difference here? Hmm. Um, I will insist that we all, no matter who we are, contain some sort of humanity, Charlie as well. And the big thing is that if we, in this film, hadn't, you know, admitted his humanity, mm -hmm. then the key for her getting him to confess wouldn't have been there. You know, that was what she did. She went in and she reminded him of his own humanity. So without us knowing that it was there or accepting it was there, it was kind of, you know, dismissing the whole premise of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, Tobias, uh, I think I've got it to go, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks you so much too. for your time. Thank you so much, man. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. And that was Tobias Lindholm. And last but not least, we have the film's writer, Christy Wilson-Cairns, for whom this is her first solo screenwriting credit after bursting onto the scene with the one-two punch of Sam Mendes' 1917 and Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho both of which she co-wrote with their directors. But Wilson Cairns has been attached to this movie for a few years now, and I talked with her about finding a way in to the subject matter, the meaning of the title, and we also touched upon some of the same topics that I approached with Lindholm, but in a very different manner. I always have a blast talking to Christy Wilson Cairns, and hopefully you'll have a blast listening to this as well. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this The Good Nurse podcast special by the film's writer, Christy Wilson-Cairns. How the devil are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be getting to potentially watch my film tomorrow night in a room full of people. Uh, <laughs> love, as you know. Um, so I'm very excited to be at LFF. <laughs> <laughs> yes, precisely. I mean, uh, so are you planning to do this when the film hits Netflix? Are you going to invite people around to your, your house all the time? I always like... do that. I always do that. I don't watch anything on my own in case it's scary. I am. Um, I have just my neighbours on call. They don't know it, but I, I just knock their door. Bring some, bring some Harry Bow. Let's watch this. Yeah. Do you ever break into your neighbour's uh, house and watch a film with them at three in the morning, but you have your headphones in so they don't know you're, you're, that you're there? You're not going to catch me out. This can't be using a court of law. <laughs> you're not going to catch me, Chris. You know patient-doctor confidentiality. You, you ever heard of podcaster podcastee confidentiality? Oh, I didn't realise. Really, where you're going to broadcast it live to your swathes of fans? No, no, I won't. I won't admit to nothing. To my, to my three fans. <laughs> this is it. I admit to nothing, absolutely. I'm one but, of those three fans, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Absolute nonsense, but bless your heart. Uh, <laughs> but uh, congrats on the film. I mean, uh, uh, this is this is not the sort of film I would expect a, a, a non-American to even be familiar with. I knew nothing about this story nothing about the story at all and i i i i'm a bit of a true crime nut in, yeah. in many many ways so how did this come your way first of all when did you first hear about this the story 
I don't want to insult you, but you seem like me, the kind of person that Googles a lot and would know about America's most prolific serial killer. Uh, and that's definitely who I am. And I had never heard of Charles Cullen. Uh, and basically the way I found out about this story was the incredible book, The Good Nurse by Charles Graeber was sent to me 10 years ago. It was um, open assignment to pitch to Darren Aronofsky's company. And I thought, oh, I don't really want to do another sort of killer thing because my first script had been about a, a murderer. And I thought, I really want to get away from that. I'll read just the first chapter and then kind of like dismiss it. And I stayed up all night reading the book because the book is so well done. It's so thrilling and it's so shocking as someone who doesn't who wasn't au fait with the American healthcare system, um, I was completely floored by it. And I think in the last third of the book, you get to Amy, Agent Amy, as she's known in the book, and her story, you know, working class, single mom, just trying to do the best things for her two kids, trying to make it through life, working an incredibly difficult job, and um, shouldn't be the person that has to stop a serial killer she shouldn't it shouldn't fall on her it should be the cops it should be the hospital system it should be you know a thousand people before her and yet it lands at her feet and she actually does it and so th those sort of things like the, the 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 machinations of the system the fact that it was the most prolific serial killer that i'd never heard of and this this woman at the center of it who i think is ultimately like a beacon of pure hope in a world of darkness. Um, those three things meant that I basically, I held on to that book and I fought tooth and nail until eventually they let me write the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because, uh, because the book you refer to, The Good Nurse, is clearly a very heavily ironic title that refers purely to Charles. And in this movie, it's unironic and it refers to Amy, but that wasn't the intention uh, initially of, of, of Charles Grieber, as you, as you say. Um, did I get his name right? Sorry, it is Charles. Yeah, Graber. yeah, Charles. It is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, There's too many Charles. Charles Graber is the writer. Charles Cullen is the murderer. It's a murderer. Charles, yeah. Very difficult. Two, and two. then Charles the Third is the king. So that's the three Charles you have to be aware of right now. <laughs> and then it's Charles and Eddie. <laughs> yes, of course. And that guy could never be a serial killer because he would never lie to us. <laughs> anyway. Very, very serious film. This is a very serious film. It is a very serious film. So yeah. we just have fun. Yeah, we do. Uh, Ill-advised. But, but anyway, um, <laughs> try and get back on track. Uh, so, but the title, the title refers purely to Amy here. And I found that really, really interesting. So with your screenwriter head on reading that book for the first time, as you say, Amy doesn't really come into the book until quite late in the day. So... Are you already formulating the film in your head when that happens? Do you, when she comes in, does a light go on and go, okay, this is it. This is our way in. Yeah, that's exactly it. You're reading the book and, and I think obviously you feel drawn to it. You feel kind of compelled to know more about it. And I was really struggling with it because I thought, I don't know how to write a movie where the serial killer is the lead. I don't want to write a movie where it's going to be from his point of view because you can never understand truly why these people do what they do. And so you're then putting words in someone's mouth. So it, so it was a real struggle. And I thought, well, you go with the cops, maybe you do this, you do that. But again, it feels so spiraling. It feels so kind of like removed. And then you hit Amy and it was a total light bulb moment. It was, of course, of course, this is who it is. Of course, this is our way in. This is, this is our man on the inside that takes us through this world. And also it's the only way to tell that story where you, the audience, get to feel the way I felt when I was reading the book for the first time, which is that you're just finding out these bits of information as and when. 
mm-hmm. and it's making you constantly reevaluate the image that you have of of Charles Cullen. So you you know, and that to me is what Amy was doing when she first met Charles Cullen. He was shy. He was really good at his job. Mm-hmm. He was very much someone that she bonded with, and they became best friends. And I think the fact that they became best friends and the fact that he helped her so much with her health conditions meant that she really became the only person that could catch him because the only way to stop someone like him, especially when that the hospital system's essentially protecting him, the only way to stop him is to remind him of humanity, is to, is to pull someone from the darkness back to the light. And Amy was the only person that could ever do that. So she, what other story is there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's so many interesting choices that are made with, with the film as well. And you have someone like Eddie, you know, Oscar winning Eddie Redmayne playing Charles. And you know, he gets this, you know, he gets a lot to do and it's a great role for him. But I was fascinated by the restraint shown with Charles. I mean, you only really get a couple of scenes of him on his own. We don't get an insight. And as you say, rightly, you know, that's probably how can you show insight into something like this when my understanding is he's never actually said why he, why he's done, why he did this. But was there discussions about that, especially when someone like Eddie Redman comes on? Oh, we have to write some scenes for Eddie where he's just doing stuff. I think there was a lot of in the early days of the script. And I mean, like pre Tobias Lindholm, the director coming on board. There was discussions about how how we would weight the film, how much would be with Cullen, how much would be with Amy, and I was so pleased when Tobias came on, and we were very aligned in the fact that it had to be Amy's story, it had to be told from her point of view. You can't let the audience get ahead of her because as soon as you get ahead of her as an audience member, you think she's silly for not seeing it, and you lose the audience. You you then she loses her character's integrity, and I think. You know, Eddie, Jessica, Tobias and I all understood that. We were all very united in how important it was to, to tell it through her point of view mm-hmm. and, to, and to let the audience experience it locked into her. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would love to write a billion things to, for Eddie Redmayne to act because he's so phenomenal. But this restraint, I think, also speaks to his talent as an actor because he understands filmmaking, understands storytelling way beyond any kind of like desire to be like best in show. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I would say about Eddie is that he acts with every molecule of his being. So when he is on screen and I, I was, I was on set while we shot this and it was crazy because mm-hmm. you would go from sit and chat to Eddie Redmayne, who's a delightful human being who you want to have dinner with all the time. And then, you know, cameras would roll and Charles Cullen would exist in these rooms. And I spent 10 years of my life reading about Charles Cullen, thinking about Charles Cullen, watching every bit of footage here and every bit of recorded dialogue. Like I spent a lot of time like with this man in my head and he was there to the extent that when the real Amy came on set, she kind of grabbed me aside after watching Eddie do a take and she went, that was my friend, Charlie. She was like, and she needed to, she needed a moment. Like it was so shocking and i think i think the fact that eddie can deliver that performance means everything about the script the film can be restrained because you know it's there you feel it coming it's 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 in every frame and then you've got jessica on the other hand who completely and utterly holds the whole humanity of the film who carries it Mm. through and who is the reason that 
the film is so watchable, so kind of like engaging and feels thrilling because you're scared for her. And so I think having the two of them, you know, as a writer, having two of the actors that are probably the best of their generation is um, really useful. Yeah, I can imagine it is. What I would recommend to other writers, if they're looking (laughs) to do stuff, just Oscar winners. In brackets, you know, (laughs) someone enters, uh, they should be played by Jessica Chastain or Eddie Redmayne. Yes. (laughs) Ideally, in an ideal world. Close brackets. There you go. Job done. Um, It's fascinating what you said there about Amy's visit to to the set and that's my friend Charlie because... The relationship between the two of them is is really, really interesting. And I asked uh, Jessica and Eddie about intentions and about those early scenes in particular. You know, did they feel that Charles Cullen's intentions were actually pure and that actually was a real friendship that was struck up between the two of them? Because, of course, ironically, that friendship and what he does to help with Amy's heart condition in essence, but if he doesn't do that, she's maybe not around to catch him in, in oh. the first place. So there's there's layers upon layers going on here. But you know, I'm in, I you know I'm intrigued to get your take on this. Did you think that he would that was an actual genuine friendship? She seems to feel that it is, even all these years later. I really do believe. I really do believe. And from speaking to Amy, who's a very smart, you know, highly educated woman who's spent a lot of time, you know, her entire career has been in the nursing profession. She's seen a lot of people come into her. ER and her intensive care units and, and tell the truth or not tell the truth. She's, you know, she's witnessed a lot of humanity and a lot of the lack of humanity, I think, in that system over there as well. And I really do believe her and, and her belief that, that this was a true friendship. And I think the only reason that she, in reality, was able to get him to confess was because he also thought it was a true friendship. You know, she that, that scene where she puts his, her cardigan around him in the interrogation room is true. Like we, we, we ripped that right out of reality. And that's how they got him. They didn't have the evidence. They didn't have the confession. They didn't have anything like that. He, and he's been doing this a while, Charles Cullen, like 16 years, maybe by this point, like he's got away with it a lot. He knows how to get away with it. And I think this time either he genuinely wanted to be caught or he genuinely wanted to be caught by her. And that, that was always my belief throughout the writing process for the 10 years I've worked in it. And uh, I've got to let you go in a second, but what you said there was really fascinating about about the system as well, about the idea that he wants to be caught, but he has been doing it for 16 years. And he's been doing it for 16 years, largely because the system turned a blind eye to him in, in a lot of ways yeah. or didn't want to be perceived as being culpable. So they would just pass him around like a hot potato. I, I obviously, you know... I'm a socialist through and through, <laughs> listen to the accent. And I really believe in socialized healthcare. Like I really believe, I think the NHS is probably, has its has its flaws, but it's probably the greatest thing our country has ever done for its people. And um, I believe in a system where profits are more important than patients, you end up with travesties. And I think Charles Cullen was always going to be a killer right? The system didn't make him a killer. But the reason that he was allowed to kill for 16 years, the reason that he was able to kill potentially 400 people is that the system was protecting itself and thereby also protecting him. And so to me, that was the the third kind of thing about this book, about this story that made me need to tell it. Because frankly, I was so fucking outraged. I can't believe you swore. That's disgusting. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I was so fucking outraged by 
the system and by the people that participated in it and that allowed him to move on and on and on. And so, you know, he was given references as he moved from hospital to hospital. So it's like, to me, the real villain is obviously the serial killer, but there's another villain at play here and that's the system. Yeah. And it's not just our system. There's, there's the, you know, there's, there's, there's three things going on here. There's a system with, uh, you know, like slightly covering up his tracks in order to escape culpability. And basically that just means lawsuits. They don't, you know, money comes first, as you say. There's the shocking breach of trust that you go to a hospital to get better. You do not expect. You know, to be and, murdered. Do you not expect to be murdered? You know, obviously Harold Shipman in this country, you know, yeah. the, the eroding trust as well. But it's also Amy's story also where where she lives in a country where you can't afford to get sick if you don't have the right kind of insurance. You can't afford the right kind of insurance. I remember when I was I lived in LA for about a year and mm-hmm. I when I came to you know move back here to England, there was a period where I was ha- driving my car back to the showroom to, you know, basically sell my car back. Yeah. And I had let my car insurance lapse because I was leaving and I had no health insurance and that was the most it's, it was the scariest car car ride of my life because I was just basically, if I get into an accident now, I am fucked a hundred ways from here until yes. Sunday. Yeah. Like if you, if you get into a bad enough accident now, you might not be able to afford to survive, which is in itself is such an insane concept. I mean, a system in which families can lose their homes because their kids get leukemia, I think is fundamentally broken. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Christy, not the best note in which to end the interview, but, but, <laughs> but there you go. Well, we started too cheery and we ended too, too dear. We've, gone, we we've go. gone too far the other direction, if you ask me, but, oh, but hey, there you go. Always pleasure, always pleasure talking to you. Nice and, to see uh, you, Chris. Indeed. I'll see you tomorrow. Hopefully all being well. Fingers crossed. All right. Get better right. soon. Bye. Cheers, Christy. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And that was Christy Wilson-Cairns. Spoiler alert, I never did host that gala in the end. Goddamn COVID. But that is it for this London Film Festival slash The Good Nurse podcast special. The Good Nurse is streaming on Netflix as of October 26th, 2022, in case you're listening to this many years in the future. And who knows, it might just see one or both of its stars back in Oscar contention again. We shall see. For more details about this year's London Film Festival and indeed next year's LFF, go to bfi.org.uk forward slash LFF. And for Empire's coverage of the LFF, check out our website, empireonline.com. Right, that's enough for me. I'm off to drive very slowly through Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.